welcome and happy Halloween and happy Bitcoin white paper day. It is the 31st of October 2023. As many of you will know, October 31st, 2008 was the date in the midst of a financial crisis where the Bitcoin white paper was first published. Um, special shout out to Jennifer, our guest today, who reminded us of that in our prep call yesterday. Um, we're sadly missing Greg today. Greg is a big lover of Halloween, but he's uh, he, he can't be with us. Uh, but I, I do love one of the things that Greg says about Halloween. It's one of the, the fun holidays in that expectations are relatively low, and it's just all about fun. Um, so I hope everybody out there has an amazing Halloween today. Uh, David, Sid, have you guys got any big plans, any nice costumes uh, that you're, <laughs> you're dressing up as tonight? Uh, I, I was going to go as a Pope and Balenciaga jacket, and then I actually looked at the prices for Balenciaga coats, and uh, <laughs> that, that killed my costume. How about you, Sid? Yeah, likewise. I, in, in, I have the same costume as last year, but this year is a bit better. It's, a, it's like a cowboy hat and some boots, um, specifically uh, in the theme of the month, the most bullish month since uh, January of this year in terms of Bitcoin. So happy to be the cowboy tonight. Nice, very, very cool. Um, David, if you want, I can we can use uh, Mid Journey and we can make you look like you're wearing a, a Balenciaga coat if, that, if that's helpful to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Let, let, let's make that happen, Ben. <laughs> okay, good stuff. We'll, we'll give it a go after the call. So, to our agenda, <clears throat> we, uh, we cover a great conversation with our special guest, Jennifer Murphy, founder and CEO of Rude Digital Assets, as well as News Macro Web3. Sid was at an ETH hackathon last week, so I'm super curious to find out how that was. Uh, before we get into it, some quick housekeeping. If you are watching on YouTube, scan the QR code to access all of David's fantastic research. He put a great report out this week around tokenization, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you are listening on podcast, all of that will be in your show notes. And no matter what platform you are consuming this from, don't forget to like and subscribe. That helps others find the show. Now. Excited to welcome Jennifer Murphy, CEO and founder of Runa Digital Assets. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Ben, thanks for having me. We are very, very happy to have you here. So Jennifer joins us as CEO and founder of Runa Digital Assets. And before that, spent a 30-year career in asset management. Seven years CEO of Western Asset Management, seven years CEO of Western Asset Mortgage Capital Corp and 15 years at Leg Mason Capital Management, where she finished at CEO. Um, so, wow, that's a, that's a very um, established and impressive uh, resume there, uh, Jennifer. So thank you for joining us. I'm curious, like, what made you join our industry? What made you, what attracted you to crypto? Ben, in 2004, I had a formative experience mid-career. I was working for my boss and mentor, Bill Miller. He was, uh, at the time, a very well-known uh, equity manager, still much more famous now. Um, but he was, at the time, evaluating the Google IPO. Um, Google was going public in 2004. It was already a well-known and established search engine, um, so it was a relatively big deal that it was going public. They used a little bit of a different model than other IPOs. It was a Dutch auction model, but, um, but uh, certainly of great interest. So Bill was evaluating that. Um, but there were enormous questions around Google's ability to monetize uh, its business model and other doubts. There were certainly other big search engines at the time. Um, so there was a lot of uh, controversy around this IPO for many reasons. And as it turned out uh, in the final analysis, the IPO price, uh, which, you know, the banker sets a range and generally that range is pretty 
uh, on par, uh, you know, on point. The range had to be reduced dramatically in the case of Google's IPO. And the, as it turned out, only two institutions in, participated in Google's IPO. One was Fidelity and the other was Bill, um, which is astonishing when you think about it. Its valuation then was $23 billion in market cap or so. It's now one and a half trillion. So I think as far as performance over that time period, it probably uh, would be almost unbeatable in terms of its returns uh, to shareholders. And yet no institutions participated. So that except for the two. So I really uh, it really struck me then how it can be something really can be unfolding right in front of you and people don't appreciate its significance. It's really hard to anticipate things, even in the near future, much less the far future. <laughs> and so so I, in those moments when you do have insight, where you think you do understand something that is clearly unfolding, I think you gotta, you got to act on it. There aren't that many you know, in a lifetime. So that's how digital assets were for me. Uh, my boss, Bill Miller, is a Bitcoin OG. He started buying Bitcoin in 2013. Um, and has I've talked to him about it a lot. And uh, in addition to Western Asset, we were using the blockchain-based applications to help streamline our operations. So those two things sort of entwined for me. And I thought this is the most important thing happening in financial services and maybe beyond. So that was how I got into digital assets. Wow. Well, what a story. I, I love that. To, uh, to be kind of that close in such a, an incredible IPO and uh, who'd have thought kind of 20, 20 or so years later uh, where they would be now and kind of the dominant position they have in search particularly. Um, wow, very, very cool. So two years ago, um, you made the leap, you jumped into digital assets, you launched Bruna. How, how did you come up with the, the name of the, of the fund? I, when I when we started the company, my partner Max Williams and I founded the company together. I was looking at the time; every single name that had the words "bit" or "coin" or "block" or "chain" was already taken. <laughs> so there was no uh, sort of direct uh, way to uh, name it something more directly related to digital assets. So I went back to I'm a huge uh, science fiction fan. Went back to one of my favorite science fiction books called The Sparrow. Uh, in it, there's a species of uh, uh, alien uh, named the Bruna, and uh, they are very interesting, and their evolution over time is very interesting, and I think has some uh, parallels to digital assets. But also, uh, in looking it up in some obscure dictionary definition, Bruna supposedly means in mathematics a sequence, uh, and so that seemed kind of relevant for blockchain. So that was how we settled on the name. Very cool. I, I like that. That's a, that's a nice story. You know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing not having block or chain or coin or file, whatever. And, and you know, I think that's okay. Um, it, 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 it's I more memorable now. <laughs> Fantastic. So on the on the prep call yesterday, we were kind of talking about markets with the rest of the team, and and your I guess you you, you stated that you think we're in a bull market, and we have perhaps been in a bull market for some time now. So we'd love to dig into that a, a little deeper, if that's all right. Yeah, Ben, you probably know, of course, John Templeton. Um, he has a great quote about uh, markets. He says, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature in optimism, and die in euphoria. And I think that's a great template for this market, I think. Um, at the beginning of, uh, if you think of 2022, you know, Bitcoin was down 64% in 2022. Most things were down 80 or 90%. Just a brutal, brutal bear market. And prices were so low coming into the year. The sentiment indicators were at extreme fear. Um, and it was really just a perfect setup for um, low expectations, for pessimism. 
So um, since then, as you know, Bitcoin's up over 100%, Ethereum's up over 50%, many tokens are up even more than that. Um, those things, those kinds of uh, runs, bull, you know, um, appreciations are consistent with bull market runs, not bear market runs. Uh, our team went back and looked at the performance of uh, the top 100 tokens in bull and bear markets, and you just don't see upswings like that in a bear market environment. Also, we haven't had the kind of um, drawdowns that you have in a bear market environment. You know, we've had draw drawdowns on the sort of order of 20 or 25 percent. That's consistent with many uh, bull markets in the past. It's not what happens in bear markets are much more brutal than that. So um, sentiment, you, you may know this, but sentiment currently in crypto is that greed. <laughs> so it's not exactly, a, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of fear, a fear environment. And I think the, um, you know, there's we're probably we're well through pessimism. I, you know, I got some pushback a month ago when I was telling people I thought we were in the skepticism phase. You know, I think we're clearly in skepticism at this point. Um, I think things like, uh, you know, there's a number of catalysts that I'm sure we'll get to that will, I think, likely push us more to that optimism and uh, ultimately probably euphoria phase. But that's why I think um, we're already in the bull market, Ben. I think um, people uh, often miss the beginning because the beginning starts at such a low point. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think I love that you started with a quote there because as we all know, like history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And um, I also quite like the remark, a comment you made just around skepticism. You, you, you mentioned that you were at a dinner party and someone said, "Oh, Bitcoin is that is that still going? Like, are you still doing that stuff?" And and David David commented he'd had the same, and I didn't say anything, but I'd also had the same. And it, it's kind of one of those funny conversations that you get periodically, uh, typically kind of this time of the cycle. Um, so I'm curious, the digital asset industry is still very nascent. Um, we've done a lot in a short period of time, and, and I, like you, are incredibly excited for what the forward path looks like. Um, given we've only had a few cycles, how do you think kind of like this bull market might be defined versus the bull market of 21 and the bull market of 17, which was slightly different, had different uh, qualities, let's say, to them? Yeah, Ben, I think this bull market that is much more important. Um, and the reason I say that is um, comes to the ETF, the, the um, likelihood, I think it's a matter of when uh, we get a spot Bitcoin ETF, uh, specifically from BlackRock. And let me explain. Um, you probably know this, that um, the gold ETF back in the early 2000s, 2004, um, really uh, was a one of the most successful ETF I um, ETF introductions ever. It reached a billion dollars in assets in three days. That was a record. And that record wasn't challenged until um, 2021 when the BITO, when the Bitcoin um, futures ETF was launched and it reached a billion dollars in two days. Um, I think this, uh, the uh, introduction of a spot ETF will easily reach a billion dollars in a day and break those records. But that's not the reason uh, I think it's so important. I think that those that'll be bullish. <laughs> Certainly, that'll generate um, actual buying of the underlying uh, Bitcoin, which is great. But I think what's really important is, and I know I think you all have talked about this before, but I think this is uh, has to do with the adoption curve. As you know, um, Bitcoin and other digital assets—they're global networks, and networks grow in value exponentially as they add nodes to the network, as they add users or um, you know participants in the network. 
So what I think is so important about this bull market is, you know, the adoption curve sort of begins with the innovators, you know, people like uh, Hal Finney and Satoshi Nakamoto and Vitalik Buterin, people like that. Um, but they're a very small part of the population. Then there are people that really value um, trying things, uh, being like early, you know, trying things first, be getting an advantage. Those are the early adopters and they're willing to take risk and uh, sort of do their own work to, to do something on their own. Um, many technologies fail at this point. You know, they they fail to reach the mainstream adoption um, because they can't uh, cross the chasm. They don't cross the chasm from uh, those early adopters to mainstream adoption. In my view, um, the BlackRock ETF is specifically is likely to push us across that chasm to full mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and digital assets. And the reason I say that is the characteristics of people who are in the early majority tend to be what what those people are looking for is completely different from what the innovators and the early adopters are looking for. The people in the early majority are it's really a social thing that they're looking for. They're looking for something that is proven, that is industry standard that is takes minimal learning that is uh they, they can depend on you know that they can um feel is tested it's used by their peers uh that's those are the characteristics of something that a, a mainstream uh early majority wants to see that in my view a blackrock etf <laughs> fits that to a t that's what's so important about it is it really transforms Bitcoin, uh, and I think likely other digital assets into the kind of product, the kind of service, the kind of investment that that early majority is looking for. So that's the reason I think really that it's maybe the most important thing. In my view, it's the most important thing that's happened since Satoshi Nakamoto. Thanks a lot, Jen. You know, I'm, I'm as optimistic as anyone about uh, the ETF and the flows that it could bring in. But something that does concern me is... Uh, you know, it, what will make this stick? You know, like, do you think there's going to be some more persistent themes that will be here with us once we, you know, get past the narrative of the ETF, for example? Like, do you think that this is going to be something that's exogenous crypto, like the Fed easing cycle, maybe de-dollarization as a trend? Uh, do you think that there's going to be some endogenous factors like the halving that's going to get people to stay inside the ecosystem and continue like to propagate those flows? Or do you think some combination of those two things? Well, I think all of those things are, are are tailwinds, right? So we have lots of tailwinds. Uh, there's certainly some headwinds too, but I think there are lots of tailwinds there. But David, I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by is how bored we get all of us so easily with the fact that companies like JP Morgan and Google and Nike and Meta, you know, are they are pouring money into uh, the development of blockchain-based um, products and services into digital asset type applications. Most of it, I think they learned maybe from Mark Zuckerberg's meta experience that maybe they shouldn't lead with it you know, front and center, that that's a high-risk strategy. Um, so even uh, Mark Zuckerberg had to pull back from that after a lot of criticism and how much money they were spending. But oh, they're still they continue to pour money into um, developing the metaverse and, and hardware and software products around it. So, um, but uh, I'm sure you saw, you know, Google is very active um, in, uh, in supporting in uh, companies and projects in um, 
blockchain and, and digital assets. So, but they don't talk much about it. You know, it's sort of advertised only maybe to us and not really to the world at large. So those companies do not start start and stop on a dime. You know, they have continued. JP Morgan, just despite Jamie Dimon's, you know, disparaging comments over the years, have been uh, a leader really in developing uh, blockchain and digital asset uh, infrastructure and applications, and they still are. So I think that's really the thing. I think we're gonna move through this period of just tremendous explosion of experiments and start to sort of coalesce on these really big, enduring, um, high traction um, uses of, of blockchain and digital assets. So if I could follow up, uh, what would your investment strategy be as we get into 2024? And I know it's, it seems like we still got two months uh, to go, but you know this is kind of how we think about things in these markets, right? Like, do you think it's going to be focused primarily on Bitcoin Ether still? Do you, are you going to be moving and looking for newer projects in the altcoin space? How, how are you thinking about it? Well, we... David, the way we thought about it coming in uh, early in the year, we it sort of uh, occurred to us this is a bull market, even though even though it doesn't feel like one, and we should be positioned appropriately. So we've been fully invested, and we did spread our um, you know our investments uh, a bit more than we typically would into um, sort of OG projects that we have high uh, conviction about, as well as newer projects that we thought would. Um, potentially catch the, either the narrative or that sort of high beta upside that um, those smaller projects can offer because of their very, you know, the sort of possibility of a very wide variety of outcomes. Um, and what surprised me was I was expecting Bitcoin and Ethereum to sort of go up first and it kind of to go down the, the quality curve, you know, <laughs> sort of other things, other sort of slightly less high quality things, but still um, established projects to go up, et cetera. And what happened was uh, it's really a barbell in our portfolio. We, we do own Bitcoin. That's done hugely well. And then a lot of these sort of small, more speculative uh, projects, those are the other things in our portfolio that have performed really well to date. So that is not what I expected. Um, I guess that's that's part of the reason to have a portfolio, right? <laughs> so so I'm not sure what to expect. And one thing I'm I we've talked about as a team that I think is worth paying attention to is I do think this cycle, for the reasons we've talked about, is likely to attract back uh, the big hedge funds and other institutional investors. And there are very few tokens or projects that are of a size to be investable for those kinds of uh, size of investments. So I think you could see some of the, um, the older projects that still have relatively big market caps benefit from that. Um, I think may maybe all of them will benefit initially, but then I expect there to be some sort of sorting me mechanism because some of those projects, I think, are dead on their feet and likely to sort of, um, you know, continue to dissipate in value over time, while others, I think, are are real and the fundamentals will continue to grow to support them. So I don't I don't have a great answer for you, David, but that's that's kind of what I'm expecting. Yeah, I think you're 100% you're right, uh, Jennifer. We, we've definitely seen just on the desk people that haven't been active since 21, um, kind of picking up the phone, wanting more updates, even starting to trade. So I think that, that aligns 100% with your perspective there. What, one thing I'm curious on is the market, you touched upon it a little bit, um, perhaps could be slightly more efficient. To your point, there's a few projects out there that maybe don't have a ton of uh, things uh, being built on top of them, but there's still a very large market cap. 
Do, do you think we continue to see the market become more efficient and more dispersion of returns between those that have solid fundamentals and those that perhaps are perhaps 2017 and 2019 stories? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, can anyone explain why uh, Sandbox trades where it does? I don't, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, I, I think um, our analyst Ned told me they have like a hundred daily active users or something like that, like one zero zero, you know, um, I don't, I'm not sure. I, to me, that is almost behaving like a placeholder. You know, it's hard. It takes a long time to build um, gaming and meta software and it's kind of a placeholder for something that is almost built. Um, so I, I'm <laughs> one thing we found though, Ben, uh, uh, Alex Bodie, who um, is another partner of mine, uh, she does a lot of quantitative research for us. And she went back and looked at, do, do fundamentals drive prices? And the answer to that was a resounding, not really. <laughs> you know, there's, there's only a loose relationship between fundamentals and uh, uh, prices so far. I think that's because of the immaturity of the asset class. But then she asked the question, do prices drive fundamentals? And the answers again was sort of, well, not really, but sometimes. <laughs> you know, so, so sometimes it's actually price going up that drives, uh, you know, fundamental activity. So, um, so it's 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 not an asset class where we can just uh, take what we knew or what we've learned from in equity or fixed income markets and just apply it directly. You really have to. Uh, think about things, I think, more uh, using more tools from venture capital and from uh, derivatives uh, like call option kind of thinking uh, to really think about what what might work here. I, I would call out, you know, and, and agree with what you said, Jennifer, but I would call out that I feel like there are some things even in the traditional finance space, like I'm looking right now at NVIDIA, for example, that's driven almost purely by momentum. I mean, <laughs> it's not that AI doesn't have a story around it, but Still, a lot of the moves we've seen in terms of the 3x like uh, over kind of valuations that it's seen, I, I think things like that definitely kind of call back to that same idea of like prices kind of moving up. But I kind of want to think about what else is out there. You know, we've discussed a lot in terms of other sectors outside of just, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, like some of the, the, the platforms and networks. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about gaming, for example, GameFi as an opportunity or how DeFi itself has kind of softened, but there's an opportunity for maybe DeFi 2.0 to kind of come back here. Could you kind of talk us a little bit through what you're seeing? Yeah. Um, our first of all, on when we're we sort of begin mostly with a bottom-up uh, approach. So Alex, Max, uh, Ned, and I are all sort of looking for um, projects uh, and um, ideas that are. Um, sort of uh, at a granular level and sort of bubbling those up to each other as potential ideas. What happened last year and um, coming into this year was a lot of those ideas were DeFi type ideas, were some of the um, innovations in DeFi that were get, seemed to be getting real traction. Um, and they're not new, um, but they're really, I think, uh, proving that they can build a, you know, a, global, a global franchise. So, um, Uniswap is not new at all, uh, but that's a, um, a favorite of mine in particular. And just very simply, um, Uniswap uh, is, uh, it's kind of the JP Morgan, I guess, of digital assets in the sense that um, it is, I don't think digital asset markets are going to thrive uh, without Uniswap thriving along with them. 
you know, I think the, you know, even though we're in a new bull market and we've had a couple of years of growth, um, Uniswap continues to um, be below the levels of, that it reached in terms of monthly active users or transaction activity or total value locks that it um, reached, you know, in previous years. And yet um, these markets are, um, I think, going to be much larger soon. And I think Uniswap will participate along with that. And one, one sort of simple metric that we watch is, um, I, I hope, Ben, you're not going to uh, chastise me about this, but we look at Uniswap relative to Coinbase. And at the beginning of this year, and they're different, uh, they're very different in many ways, um, but sort of simplistically at the beginning of this year, um, Coinbase's market cap relative to Uniswap was about two times um, Coinbase worth twice as much. Now Coinbase is worth five to six times as much as Uniswap. And we think that that gap is likely to narrow. Um, so it's, I think, you know, it's likely to narrow by Uniswap going up. So, <laughs> so that's just a sort of simple uh, public market uh, sort of comp that you can uh, use as one way to think about Uniswap. But I think really um, Uniswap is just, it's a, it's sort of proven um, uh, has significant traction with a large base of users and is will be vital to the ongoing, you know, thriving ecosystem of digital assets. There are some risks for sure. I think the um, regulatory risk is still there. I think the recent actions by Uniswap Labs, I think, have introduced some governance risks and questions that um, maybe uh, weren't weren't uh, so reflected in the price. So. Um, so far, I'm dead wrong on this. By the way, <laughs> Uniswap's one of the few things that hasn't gone up this year, uh, but I we still we still like it a lot. But also things like Lido and um, UIDX and others that are really I think um, really carving out uh, space for themselves and will benefit from a lot of the uh, the likely dynamics going forward. Yeah, thanks for thanks for that perspective, Jennifer. I'm really curious also to just double click on your Uniswap take. Um, recently, I mean, they, they've been announcing the rollout of Uniswap V4 and also Uniswap X, which is uh, um, they, they route some trades to centralized exchanges. Uh, curious to hear your take. There's been a big debate on crypto Twitter for several months now on the profitability of being a liquidity provider on Uniswap, where, you know, as price discovery usually happens for the large pairs on centralized exchanges like Binance and Coinbase, and then LPs basically suffer as a result of that. Um, do you actually see, a few, what do you see as a future of on-chain liquidity provisioning, especially on these large DEXs like Uniswap? Well, I think the, um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, Sid. I don't know that I have any great insight, but I think my understanding is, and you probably know this too, that um, Uniswap, the V4 will allow for essentially more um, for developers to be more creative, to, to have more tools at their disposal to create the kinds of things that allow LPs to earn more. So I think it sort of opens the door for that and strengthens their hand. I think also it kind of the, between that and Uniswap X, it kind of shows that um, if you think about a network um, and what, what a decentralized exchange is, what makes it valuable, what sort of determines its fitness, liquidity is a huge driver, right? And I think this that Uniswap is just this 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 concentration of liquidity that is likely, unless there's a really really uh, strong effective challenger, that's likely just to grow because liquidity begets liquidity. Um, so I think they're they'll have the they have the time and the resources to continue to address to upgrade uh, their um, their software and add these tools, um, add things like hooks. Uh, that allow um, to 
to continue to build the ecosystem in a way that is more advantageous for LPs. And that also, I think some people believe sort of wipes out some of the other um, new entrants that have tried to pick off some of the pieces that Uniswap doesn't do so well. Um, it kind of shows the power of that huge liquidity pool and the resources they have to add functionality, to add flexibility, and continue to fend off, you know, the sort of smaller, smaller challengers. But I, I don't know, Sid, if you have a different or if you have anything to add there, or David, yeah. I have nothing to add there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so any any thoughts on that, Sid? No, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's a TBD, right? How this ecosystem is going to evolve, whether more moves off chain or, or remains on chain. So, I think we'll see over the coming months. Yeah. Personally, uh, I'm excited to see what the world looks like when you get more real world assets on chain and what Uniswap are able to do there. Obviously, there's a question around regulation there, but I think, um, to your point, Jennifer, I think the, 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 the TAM for something like Uniswap at that point becomes very, very large and it becomes instantly global. Um, but, but, but anyway, sorry, David, over to you. No, 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 no worries. I actually was kind of curious about uh, how Jennifer thinks about GameFi, actually, because, you know, I think as a sector, it's very interesting. But, you know, like anything, like even though I think we're we are moving to more of an application centric kind of uh, thesis in terms of the, the trading environment we're in, um, it's very hard to choose winners. So what can you do in a situation like that? Do you have to go default to choosing the platform instead? Do you just pick a handful of apps that you think might be a, the AAA game that kind of really gets people involved? Like, uh, what, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, it is a dilemma. And one thing we really appreciate is you all just hosted um, Immutable X in your offices. Um, Max was up there for that. Um, that is one of the things we own, David, um, a platform that supports, you know, that's specialized. It's, you know, um, specifically honed for gaming. Uh, and not only that has a, uh, what appears to be a just a great leadership team and um, and a really strong track record of partnerships that are aligned and likely to drive you know revenue through the system over time uh, if they you know if they're successful. So um, so we like Immutable X a lot because of its platform qualities. But um, you know, David, I, you're right. I've I've looked at uh, lots of games. Ned, our analyst, uh, focuses on that for us. Um, you know, he sort of did a review for us recently of all the games out there because we have almost no exposure to them because I can't get comfortable uh, or the team can't either to um, to invest in specific games. You know, we've looked at Alluvium many times and I just can't develop conviction about it at these prices. Um, and it's down a lot, you know, even from where it traded a couple of years ago and still I'm having trouble having conviction about it. Um, the things that I think we're watching with a lot of interest are card games. There seems to be some, you know, uh, that seems to have reasonable success on uh, in blockchain, you know, type applications. Fantasy sports, that seems to be getting um, some real traction. That seems very promising. So we're spending some time sort of tracking some things there. And gambling, you know, David, uh, gaming and gambling are always... <laughs> hotbeds of, uh, you know, where new technology gets used first and often gets developed first. So I think, um, even though it sounds funny, it's actually a serious uh, and I think a good way to to track, you know, where where things are working and what business models work. So um, we're, we're sort of tracking all those things, but not finding a lot to buy and put in a diversified portfolio. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And, and thank you very much for uh, for, for plugging our uh, event last week. Uh, that will actually be coming out on podcasts in the next week or so. So 
uh, folks make sure to check out that. Uh, and I agree. I think the the musical team certainly told a very persuasive story. Um, so it was the first I'd really got into it. So it's good to hear from them. Now, I'd like to, a final question for you, Jennifer, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll stay with us for the rest of the call. Um, we started the conversation talking about the evolution of the market and what the bull market might do for Bitcoin. Um, in the prep call yesterday, we talked about network theory and phase change. I'd love you to kind of just break that down for your audience a little bit and, and kind of how you think that might uh, play a part in, in, the, in the coming years. Yeah, I think, um, Ben, one of the things we, we've talked about it yesterday and today on this call, um, the, you know, the tools that are used for equity analysis, for fixed income analysis, and uh, are really, um, you know, in some ways, they, they share a lot of common uh, time-tested investment principles, and we, we buy into those things, too. We're definitely using those principles when thinking about what to buy. But I think that the characteristics of digital assets as networks make them different than uh, equity or fixed income or other types of assets. So I think we, we're spending more time and I think it's probably worth uh, our industry, you know, or the investment professionals in digital assets to spend more time on network theory and on the um, characteristics of networks to think about um, what that means for digital assets and how to value digital assets. So, for example, um, there's some, um, you know, good work and interesting work in net network theory around what characteristics drive a, um, an outcome in networks of winner take all versus uh, winner take most, you know, the, the sort of uh, fittest uh, get get rich. Um, and that makes that that can make a big difference when evaluating something. So, for example, when Max and I started, uh, our our view was in terms of Bitcoin that Bitcoin as a global store of value and ultimately as potentially a global um, currency uh, that it was winner take all. That um, Bitcoin was so fit for purpose and uh, so dominant relative to the other um, possibilities that um, it was there was going to be no. Whatever second best there was would be, you know, just miles and miles behind it. And so we essentially ignore all of that, you know, and our bets on the where we think the winner take all is. And I think um, in the uh, not winner take all uh, networks, they're really uh, they have different characteristics. There are they tend to follow power laws in terms of the the likely the dominant player versus second, third and fourth. And so in thinking about um, whether something is likely to be winner take all versus a more um, typical network where um, there's more of a power law of, of competitors, um, those, those behave differently and they're valued differently. So I think we're thinking about those things and um, how networks grow and um, what's likely to succeed when thinking about um, you know, ultimate value. Um, and I guess another thing I would mention is uh, you've probably heard of the Lindy effect that says sort of the, the longer something's around, the longer it's likely to be around. Um, there's a lot of uh, research in network theory that backs that up. So what, what's the implication of that? The implication is if there's uh, tokens that have projects that have been around uh, for years and are and are successful, then the, the chances of a new kid on the block knocking them out are falling fast, you know, every day, every week, every month that goes by, you really have to introduce something that's so dominant to knock them, you know, out of the game. So um, I think that changes our, our evaluation of projects over time. So something two years ago that might have looked very promising 
if it, if it hasn't succeeded by now, uh, there's probably serious doubts about whether it's likely to ever be a significant, you know, long-term winner. So that's where we're, I think, I think we would all benefit from spending a little more time on thinking about the network aspects of digital assets. It's amazing. You're, you're making me rethink my personal portfolio now. Uh, <laughs> it's a painful afternoon. Um, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for, for that. Um, I know you're staying with us for the rest of the call. Um, I have a ton more questions um, and, and hopefully we'll get to ask those in, question, in person at some point. But um, yeah, thank you very much once again. Josh, moving on to you for the news, please. Yep. Uh, thanks, Ben. So tough act to follow. Uh, I especially enjoy Jennifer's points on BTC and its move from uh, early adopters to hopefully becoming an early majority asset. I think that's how we're all here. So um, switching switching gears, though. Good morning and happy Halloween to everyone. Uh, here's to helping that there's no Frankenstein-like boo price action lurking around the corner. Uh, but where to begin but BTC? Um, crypto price action has maintained its positive stance as BTC has really looked to continue to dominate headlines in the narrative at the moment. Um, perhaps it is a little bit boring for this crowd, but it is notable that BTC is seeing divergent price action when compared with other traditional financial assets. So uh, when we take a look at the week ending um, last week, 1027, the S&P traded down 4.7%, the NASDAQ, I think somewhere around down 4%. Um, gold traded higher about 4%, and the 10-year yield drifted lower in the same time. Um, so the narrative that we all talked about earlier in the year when the regional banking turmoil was really ongoing was the value of BTC as a hedge against traditional assets. Um, fast forward back to today, and it's impossible in my view to ignore the deteriorating macro backdrop, um, not only with respect to concerns around geopolitical tension, but with fresh worries now around EPS growth, uh, with soft earnings from a bunch of heavyweights like Google, but also traditionally defensive pharma names like Bristol-Myers. Um, so I think from my perspective, with a lowering equity outlook and a stubbornly you know, strong domestic economic outlook, um, BTC's pr divergent price action, while of course driven here by ETF expectations, I believe also looks to be enjoying its narrative um, as being an uncorrelated risk haven asset in the long term. Um, so changing liquidity conditions are still probably a factor here with the move higher, but it is good to see that the block reported a notable pickup in volume the last seven days uh, with $24 billion traded on October 26th really the highest since March, um, and notably higher than the sub $10 billion in September and early October that we talked about here, where there just wasn't a lot of activity happening. Um, adding to the flow story, CoinShares on their blog yesterday reported that digital asset products saw its largest single week of inflows of $326 million since July of 2022. Um, BTC saw 90% of that, according to CoinShares, um, which reiterates the case that BTC is continuing to see some meaningful, meaningful flows. Um, elsewhere away from spot markets, one very interesting headline that I think a lot of our clients were asking us about um, was with respect to the CME um, and a large jump in open interest on the CME. Um, institutional investors largely trade on, on the CME for credit reasons, um, amongst other things. So it seems to indicate strong interest from the institutional crowd, uh, which I think further builds the bull thesis that this price action is warranted. Um, Greg's out for today, so I will just give a quick overview of our flows. We are seeing notable buy interest across most players, including TradFi institutions, crypto natives, and crypto companies. Uh, interestingly, traditional hedge funds have been slightly better to sell, uh, perhaps taking advantage of this pop to offload some risk. Um, in token-specific flows, we're actually quite balanced with BTC, but are better to buy an ETH and sold. Our altcoin flows are otherwise balanced as well. Um, uh, but switching gears to just uh, outsized token gainers. So we have Pepe up 24% as the market notes uh, bull market vibes, not only in the majors, but also in meme coins as well, including Floki, which was trading up 38% last week. 
Uh, Mina is also running up 51% on news at Upbit, Korea's largest exchange is listing the pair for trading. Uh, rounding us out with some regulatory headlines, the UK published its final rules for regulating crypto and stablecoins, which will bring re relevant activities to be regulated um, under the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, there looks to be a lot of details here, but one thing worth noting here is that DeFi is outside of the purview of this bill. Um, and statements from the Treasury Minister that this framework would, in quote, make the UK the obvious choice for starting and scaling, <coughs> excuse me, a crypto asset business looks on the surface to be quite positive. And moving further east, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has partnered with policymakers in Japan, Switzerland, and the UK uh, to foster responsible digital asset innovation in tokenized form. The purpose, it says, is to advance digital asset pilots in FX, um, fixed income, and asset management products. Uh, what's notable to me is that in the press release, the Monetary Authority states that there is a need for closer cross-border collaboration and to better support sustainable growth of the digital asset ecosystem. Um, David, I think, you know, I saw that you put out a really great piece on tokenization. Um, so I think it actually would be interesting to hear more from him with respect to benefits of cross-border collaboration here, given the difficult legal regulatory questions um, as the tokenization effort picks up steam. Uh, David, did you have any thoughts on the MAS headline? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, some of the biggest issues for tokenization is this regulatory ambiguity and this this complexity with actually managing different jurisdictions because, you know, this forces a lot of uh, institutions to actually rely on private networks and not just like one network that runs across, you know, the entire company, for example, but it might need several networks. Um, and this is something we kind of focused on because I think that there has been some skepticism that tokenization uh, is here to stay. For example, you know, we've seen this before. A lot of people said that uh, back in 2017, we're expecting trillions of dollars of real world assets to be on chain and that didn't necessarily materialize. So a lot of people are looking at the current situation saying, well, this looks more like hype than reality. Um, I don't think it is. You know, I think that institutions actually have found that there is a very strong product market fit for tokenization here. The current high yield environment we have actually makes capital efficiency a lot more important. Like if you're sitting on, you know, 5% interest rates for T plus two, for example, having instantaneous settlement is really significant, a lot more important than when it was, you know, zero two years ago. So I think that these things are, are what's kind of making it sticky. And I think that it, like tokenization will be crucial to the next crypto market cycle. Uh, but probably we won't see a lot of this stuff kind of finalized until a year or two when the regulatory situation maybe also finds a little bit less uncertainty than what we have today. Perfect. And uh, Josh, thank you very much for that, for that rundown. Just checking, a Frankenstein move in Bitcoin is a positive move? I was just wanted to just double check that on that one. Well, I guess uh, you go either way, but I'm thinking a downwards move. I was saying like no uh, move around the corner. I don't want a Frankenstein move lower to 20 well, he, he, like, he like sits up. So like, oh, that's the trouble with Halloween puns. I think that oh. it's, it comes unclear. <laughs> right, guys. I, I thought the boo around the corner was clear that it's negative, but maybe I should have. Uh, okay, okay. Well, we're, we're just going to spin it as positive. Um, on on that on that note, what else is seeing positive positive moves or positive news or, or things like that? Other assets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we continue to see um, some positive moves and a lot of talk around Solana in particular. Um, it's trading up another 9% up on the week. It's up 246% year to date. So even outpacing gains, um, obviously, in Bitcoin and ETH, and really one of the, the best performing major, what we would consider a major asset in crypto. Um, Van Eck also put out a well flag piece on a bull bear base case scenario. 
uh, by 2030. And the range was, I think, from $9 to like $3,200. But I think what they were drawing out in that was different scenario analysis around where price targets could be based on the different scenarios. Um, and so with Breakpoint ongoing in Amsterdam, I think we're continuing to wait, wait to see some headlines there uh, on what might emerge and what developments might be breaking. Very cool. And, and David, we'd love to bring you in here. There was a note from Vanek yesterday um, giving a, a pretty broad price target or rather a price range uh, for Solana ahead of Breakpoint, which is fantastic timing. Curious, did you get a chance to read it? Have any, any thoughts there? I mean, I think Solana has been a really interesting one, right? Because just the price action alone, we've seen it kind of increase like 80 to 90% over the course of the last month. Uh, and, you know, I think that what people are missing is that things have developed on this network because we're seeing, for example, uh, they have Drip, which has found some pretty decent product market fit on the network. You know, this is an application that onboards artists and you can subscribe to them and every week you kind of get a free NFT drop. Uh, Dpin, which is Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks, um, has been a sector that has kind of been kind of been lagging uh, over the last year or so, but it's, it's kind of come back. You know, like I think that uh, the need is that you have to prove that there's actually demand for this product, but you know places like Hive Mapper has been focused on this. Um, it seems like uh, it's been focused pretty well. You know, there there's, was an announcement this week about how uh, end users are going to benefit from this. So I think that uh, you know this is kind of driving the performance on Solana. Plus, looking ahead, you know, outside of um, the the uh, you know conference in in Amsterdam this week. You are also seeing that um, pretty soon Jump is going to launch uh, another client here. So once you know Fire Dancer comes live, plus there's another one waiting in the wings as well. You know you'll see that it's very unlikely for the network to see as much downtime, and there hasn't been downtime since February, by the way. But I think that these things are contributing to kind of the market sentiment that actually they have a good product. Uh, the virtual machine has been. Uh, very, very strong, for example, in terms of its processing power. So I, I think this is what's probably contributing to the mindset of Solana. But I would love to kind of get, um, you know, Jennifer back in here because I know she looked very closely at the Van Eyck paper that you uh, referenced and she has some uh, good thoughts around it. Yeah, David and Ben, I liked the paper. I When I saw the criticisms of it, I was a little surprised because um, it's what I, I thought Bannock did a nice job of doing what actually my old boss, Bill Miller, used to ask analysts to do on equities back uh, back in the day. Um, he would ask them not only to do valuation work, but also to do a valuation approach that looked at different scenarios, including the bull scenario of what if things really happen right here? You know, what if it really unfolds uh, in the bullish way that some people are expecting? What could that mean to its ultimate value? That, he found that to be really important data point in deciding, uh, you know, whether something was cheap or not. So I like the way they laid that out. But I also appreciated. I thought they did a really good job of laying out the risks. And for me, I find the risks more persuasive in Solana, at least at these prices. Um, so, uh, so, but I, I thought they did a really nice job of both of those things. So, I thought it was a really good report. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably hear some, some news out of Breakpoint this week. So, interesting to see how it, how it continues to react and whether it can hold these levels. Um, one one personal anecdote from the hard mapper perspective. So, full disclosure, I do have a one of those in my car, which my wife uh, detests. But um, I, we, were, we were driving down the road the other day, 
and uh, we have a Volvo that, that kind of has a self-drive thingy and she was saying how bad it was at tracking speed limits and my response was, which I think she ignored, but my response was um, HiveMap is really good for this because it gives you real-time update on when the speed limits change so you get that directly into your, your sat-nav, um, whereas some of the Google mapping data is many years old. So small things like that when you've got real-time um, mapping and networks, uh, built, uh, people are building their networks for you. Uh, I think there is some value there. And, you know, congrats to HiveMapper for seeing a, a paying customer for the first time in the <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I think I think I bore my wife with uh, with kind of crypto stuff, uh, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, perfect. Well, thank you very much for that, Josh. Uh, David, let's uh, let's move on to macro, please. Yeah, happy to. You know, so I actually think um, you know piggybacking on what both Jennifer and uh, Josh kind of mentioned. You know, I think. Uh, Jennifer is absolutely right. You know, like the the move in Bitcoin this week has really just kind of captured a lot of people's attentions with respect to ETF, uh, you know, applications and their potential approval. Um, but I also think that something people are missing about this is that there are just very few alternatives uh, recently. You know, like um, Josh kind of said this succinctly with regards to equities, but you know, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of safe havens in the world because. If you look around, for example, bonds aren't where they used to be. Um, fine, they've kind of stopped going higher, but it doesn't mean that that's going to necessarily peak here and, and it's going to just stop. It just means that we're slowing down. Um, the yen, for example, is having a very difficult time. Like The authorities are trying to keep it under the 150 level against the dollar, for example, but it's been a challenge. So I think you have seen that uh, amid some of the you know developments that we've seen around the world, gold, Bitcoin, have kind of gotten uh, some more kind of flows benefiting from that recently. Uh, but we are seeing a very busy calendar this week, uh, at least on the macro front. You know, uh, my personal take is I think the quarterly treasury report is going to be a lot more important than what the Fed actually says at its FOMC meeting. Um, they have already announced, the treasury department that is, that it is going to cut its net borrowing estimate for uh, the, the rest of the year from 852 billion to 776 billion but still uh we are waiting to hear what the refunding size is going to be and a lot of people are predicting it's going to be somewhere around 114 billion that was published in the wall street journal um and i think that that's going to be important because uh the concern that a lot of people have has moved away from the fed necessarily of whether they're going to continue hiking in the next few meetings to okay the fed actually thinks that the tightening in the financial conditions already kind of adds maybe 25, 50 basis points to the level of hikes that they would otherwise put in. So it turns now to the amount of supply that's going in. A lot of people questioning what's going on with demand on the side of the equation because it doesn't seem as, uh, you know, it, without a buyer of last resort coming from the Fed, for example, with Japanese uh, bond buyers uh, kind of turning inwards, looking at JGBs instead. I think that. The government is looking more towards more price sensitive kind of buyers like pension funds, like insurance companies. Um, so this is becoming more of an issue. And I think it's only going to grow in significance as we get into 2024, which, again, kind of feeds into my investment thesis for Bitcoin next year. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think with yields themselves, we saw Bill Ackman's tweet, for example. Uh, I think this kind of does show that one person can actually move the market with one tweet. It's not just unique to crypto, for example. It happens in traditional finance as well. Um, so it does at least say that we're getting a pretty much peak fear as far as U.S. Treasury yields. Um, but I don't think that we're going to be done here. There's still potential upside. 
It's just that we're not going to be moving in quite the same haphazard way, which will probably at least, you know, temper the concerns in uh, traditional markets. Thanks, David. And do you think that we're going to see the correlation between macro and crypto strengthen again, or are we we going to stay broken for a little while? I think that we have a very strong idiosyncratic story in crypto right now, particularly for Bitcoin. And, you know, we saw that last week where Bitcoin basically moved four standard deviations higher relative to the last uh, three uh, three months, uh, whereas, of course, stocks moved three standard deviations lower. So, I mean, not only was a divergence, but it was a massive divergence here. Um, part of that has to do with the ETF story. Um, and I think that that may continue because I think some of the macro themes that we're looking into, I kind of named one with the Treasury, for example. You know, the, the good thing there, like I said, like if you know peak yields are, are really high, U.S. Treasury yields haven't impacted uh, Bitcoin now, they're, they're probably not going to going forward because I'm, I'm seeing that the yields are going to kind of taper off or at least kind of just moderate around these higher levels. Um, but. Also, I think that we are still dealing with a potential banking crisis in 2024. Um, I think that there are still concerns around geopolitics, for example. And I think those things are going to feed into Bitcoin in a way that continues to make it separate or have it have the trend move separately from what we're seeing in traditional uh, securities. Perfect. Thank you, David. Um, Sid, moving on to some uh, update on Web3, please, and, and also what was going on at the ETH hackathon in London. Yeah, so starting with the ETH hackathon, I was it, it was a ETH it was organized by ETH London um, and ETH Global, and um, it was hosted in central London. I, I visited it over this past weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and uh, TLDR from it was you know from the looks of it, the developer interest is um, at bull market levels. There's, it was absolutely packed, uh, two floors in a, in a popular lo- uh, hotel in central London. Packed with developers, every table was full. There was bean bags on the floor. Several folks were staying the night and hacking. Um, a lot of interesting projects um, uh, came out of it, and you know, I think there were several winners for different categories. There were different incentives by Google, uh, Near Protocol, Tezos, and other projects. Um, in general, yeah, it was pretty optimistic to see the kind of enthusiasm uh, by developers uh, building different kinds of apps. Um, I think, as we've mentioned in previous calls, um, the need for kind of more uh, applications uh, on to build on top of the infrastructure that we've had uh, developed over this past uh, bear market is kind of the need of the day, right? So exciting to see um, you know events like this. Very cool. Very cool. And was there anything anything being built that kind of captured your attention, solving a big problem, likely to see traction? Um, maybe not necessarily a huge problem per se, but. It definitely interesting projects. Uh, there was one uh, that was a, a real-time music exchange, you know, uploading music on chain in a compressed format and then allowing for, you know, provenance and especially provenance of beats that are used. There's a lot of music tracks that use samples um, from historic times. And so, you know, a novel use case of, you know, storing um, music on chain to kind of know where those samples come from, uh, which is pretty interesting as well. Um, I think there's a lot of projects kind of drawing inspiration from FriendTech in terms of the owning bits of people, owning bits of um, things, and and then kind of trading them around and then having a conversational interface uh, along with that. So we're actually seeing that even across established projects um, over the past week, you know, several uh, on-chain data providers like Arkham, um, Zapper, et cetera, all released their kind of chatting functionality. So we'll see where, where, where this kind of trend leads us. 
Nice. And are they using the same protocol to launch their chat services? Because at that point, they should be able to communicate with one another, right? Because I guess we don't want 25 different uh, chat handles. We want one, one handle, one platform that we can get from every single app. Yeah, so it's not it's not a unified protocol, unfortunately. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there isn't really one kind of unified standard for on-chain messaging. You know, I, I know Coinbase Coinbase Wallet experimented with the XMTP as one of the kind of protocols to send messages between wallets, but they, we haven't seen something that's widespread and adopted, especially for apps across chains in different ecosystems that are non-EVM, for example. Uh, it's slightly different, so perhaps that's something that'll also emerge from this phenomenon. Perfect. Um, what, what else has been capturing your eye this uh, this week? Um, yeah, uh, other things. Uh, so a few months ago, we uh, speaking of apps, we had a um, kind of explosion of um, these kind of Telegram bot interfaces for which traders could use to um, trade tokens and then also snipe tokens on Uniswap. Um, and over the past couple of weeks, uh, two of the leaders in the space saw exploits. Um, one was Maestro, which was exploited last week for around 500K. And then today, earlier today, uh, Unibot, which is the leader in the space, was exploited also for 600K. Um, the exploit seems to be linked to um, a deployment of some of their new routing contra contracts. So, um, you know, they're, they're the funds have are being transferred via Tornado Cash right now as on-chain as we can see. Uh, but yeah, several users uh, adopted these uh, products. Uh, they had live tokens as well. The tokens are down double-digit percentages as a result. Um, but it, it was it caught a quite, a, quite a bit of hype over the summer, especially as meme coin frenzy was heating up on-chain um, because you know folks spent a lot of their time on Telegram using this interface uh, to also trade was seemed like a natural extension. Um, and and you know there's a lot of promise around that but we'll see how they kind of recover whether they recover from these exploits or not it's obviously a new product space it's not as lindy as um you know say just the plain uniswap interface but they're just alternative interfaces for for trades on chain yeah, um, I, feel, I feel like once once you lose that trust it takes a lot to, to to build that back and they often use so much of their incentives at the same time to kind of win that, that early customer Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and related to trust, uh, you know, another kind of interesting development this week was um, we saw almost a billion dollars added to this project called Staked USDT, STUSDT, uh, which is uh, primarily on a project on Tron, where folks can stake USDT or TUSD in return for approximately a 4.2% yield. Um, and the proposed you know, use case of this is basically they're using government bonds on the back end to generate this yield. Um, but it's done by a project called RWA DAO, and it, and it seems to be funded heavily by um, HTX, wallets associated with HTX and Justin Sun. Um, obviously, the Tron ecosystem is uh, a lot of funds are from Justin Sun associated wallets. But uh, it's interesting that it's such a large capital allocation has been made to this uh to this particular project, especially over the past couple of weeks, almost a billion extra. It's, it's sitting at around 2.28 billion TVL uh, currently. Um, and uh, yeah, another project that kind of relies on uh, trust to a heavy degree to kind of generate that yield. And, and do we know what they're doing in the back end with these, this USDT and, and which real world assets they're investing into? So what's stated on the, on the website is, uh, you know, um, short and long dated US government bonds. Um, but uh, but on the back end, I think what they're 
trying to do is kind of almost redeem the USDT for uh, for US dollars uh, and then using that. Um, it's unclear how exactly after the fiat angle, um, how they go about it. Um, but a lot of the USDT that's staked, it's, it's on Tron as well. Obviously, you know, the majority of USDT minted is on Tron today. Um, so there's a heavy linkage in between those ecosystems. Um, but uh, just flowing, the, just seeing the flow of funds, we're seeing quite a lot of that flowing to redemptions as well. Uh, not all of it, but but quite a lot of it. So, yeah, I guess we'd love to see some transparency from them as to kind of how they're accessing the, the treasury market. I mean, obviously with Maple, they're very clear that they work with Room 40. And then you've got Ondo, who are also very open with who they do. I think they use BlackRock um, or an iShares um, trust of some sort. But uh, yeah, I guess with with Tron, you don't always seem to get the same level of transparency sometimes. Um, but yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're going to add it. So one to look for, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. The hope is they probably add it. Um, we'll keep a lookout for it maybe over the coming weeks we can publicize because it's a pretty large amount of funds flowing around out there. Um, so something to keep an eye on. And then in other news, um, there was another uh, in the Avalanche ecosystem, which is a kind of somewhat controversial piece of news where their main block explorer called Snowtrace uh, announced it's shutting down because uh, they didn't want to pay the fee to Etherscan uh, for their uh, Etherscan's Explorer as a service uh, solution. Um, basically, all most EVM chains use Etherscan um, as their block explorer of choice. And currently, I think they're charging $2 million per year for this service. Um, and kind of Avalanche is the first major chain to kind of move away from that. They say they're kind of building their own in-house explorer that bridges together all of their, uh, you know, all the different parts of their ecosystem, including subnets and 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 then also their other chains. Um, but yeah, it was, it was met with quite a lot of uh, controversy on, on on Twitter as folks were kind of uh, uh, confused as to why they made that decision. You know, the ROI of having an, a clean indexed trusted solution, um, which Etherscan has kind of become in this space, uh, you know, seemed to be kind of a no-brainer, but, uh, you know, we'll see it's kind of a different direction taken by Avalanche. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's only one to watch. I feel like the, the value of Ether, Etherscan is just so huge and can't be, under, can't be overstated um, when we're trying to understand what's going on on the train. Cool. Well, thank you very much for that, Sid. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you, Josh. And a big, big thank you to Jennifer for joining this week. A really, really fantastic conversation. Um, that's a wrap. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Bitcoin White Paper Day. Uh, we hope you all enjoy your trick-or-treating. And the rest of the week, at least, is a treat for you. Take care, everyone. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener. 